Have you ever heard of the term unhinged marketing? No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, I think we could probably, on our, in our mind, think about there have been some marketing campaigns that were a little unhinged when we saw them. But this is actually a specific discipline that has come around with the advent of things like, you know, it started with Twitter and it grew into TikTok and all of that. The Twitter account for Wendy's subtweeting Burger King or McDonald's. It's based on the premise that polished content is boring. And so now what we have to do is we create this unhinged or chaotic marketing to be different than all the others. How do you see unhinged marketing working in our space? Well, I don't know that we're going to troll like the other hospital system across the town or maybe somebody that's really high on an awards list, like, you know, throwing shade at everybody else. Keep an eye on your guy running the wound care center. Don't let him get too far down this path. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 344. That is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. I think I'm going to do an unhinged recording of our podcast today, Reed, if you're okay with that. (laughs) I don't know if that'd be much different than what we normally do. But thank you all for tuning in and listening. We certainly appreciate it. Regardless of how good or poor we we execute the podcast, you continue to come back each week, and we certainly appreciate that. So very quickly, touchpoint.health is the website. We'd love for you to pop over there and sign up for the TPS report. It is an email that comes out each Monday morning with five articles to start your week. We'll value add for you, the listener, and hopefully you find that to be so. So we will pause here for just a second, let you go do that, and then be back to uh, talk about everybody's favorite topic, AI, here in just a few minutes. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Aaron Patzer recently. He's with Vital.io, which is an AI platform. And that interview is going to run a little bit later in today's show. But one thing that he said as we were kind of going down this path of like trying to what are we going to talk about for the shows? You know, we, we tend to do. He said something to me, which was he believes that AI technology and algorithms 
are actually better used to humanize the care experience. When I mentioned it to you, what sprung to mind to you when I said that? That AI humanizes. I guess intellectually, I could figure out how to get there, you know, and I understand kind of where we're coming from, but it's not like I don't go, well, that's why we're doing it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, but it, it really is this concept of humanization of AI and technology is something that a lot of people have been thinking about. So before we jump to the interview, let's you and I talk a little bit about the importance of doing this. And we are actually going to use an article that we found that was on Springer Link, a publication, a peer-reviewed publication about artificial intelligence that's called, and here's a long title for you, The Importance of Humanizing AI Using a Behavioral Lens to Bridge the Gaps Between Humans and Machines. This is this has got Terminator written all over. Yeah, it's exactly what came into mind. I was about to say the same thing. So. <laughs> I worry about bridging between humans and machines. No, yeah, interesting, very in depth. Uh, lots to read and, and take from this, and so we'll certainly post post the link. But pulling out a few uh, tidbits here, kind of take you through some of the the cliff notes, if you will, of this of this uh, article. They start out by talking about you know some of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest challenges of AI is the lack of consideration for human enhancement as a cornerstone. If you think about human enhancement, right, as a cornerstone for its operationalization, which is a, also a very long word there, if you think about it, what we're really talking about is getting us to adopt this technology in a much broader way. The article goes into, as I mentioned to you, this is like written by a number of scientists, and they really have a, a very lofty approach to what they're saying here. But they said that the behavioral science field offers suggestions on how to develop a sustainable and enriching relationship between humans and intelligent machines. And they outline a three-level framework on how we can start to humanize AI with the intention of enhancing human experiences. Okay. that's Well, there's a framework, so that's good. <laughs> it, Seems like a lot, but I do, I do like the concept, right? Like this idea that like just technology solves everything and it's just like a silver bullet or whatever has never been the case, you know, and you and I have talked about this as it relates to CRM or marketing automation or chat bots or whatever through the years. Right. So I think this is kind of following along the same trajectory, maybe. Moreover, right. The article goes on to say that the more we humanize AI, we're going to make their application more ethical and human-centric. Okay. So don't be scared, people. We're not trying to lower the barriers between technology and machines and artificial intelligence and us as humans. What we're trying to do is actually be very thoughtful and ethical about our programming of AI. This concept of humanizing AI is, as as this paper outlines, an ambiguous concept. And there's a big challenge in that there's no kind of universally accepted approach around what that means, humanizing AI. So no universally accepted approach. Um, so whatever we say here goes. Is what we're saying. <laughs> no, they say, but in a narrow definition, humanizing AI means the process of creating and using AI that one understands not only human emotions, but human unconscious dynamics 
two, has the ability to interact with humans in a natural human-like manner. And finally, three, during its interaction, it processes information in a very similar way that people do. That's a lot, it seems like. I mean, obviously, this is this is a very much a, an intellectual paper as we as we read it. But um, we're going to touch on a very high level f- the framework that we talked about, the micro, meso, and macro framework to get there. The underscoring concept here is that if you produce AI that processes information similar to people, it does not automatically produce that symbiotic relationship between humans and AI, but it is a requirement to build that trust relationship. So let's talk about these three areas and maybe this will give a little bit more light to this concept of what is humanizing AI. Yeah. So the first one they call it micro, uh, which is humanizing AI from an algorithm perspective. So the guide to evolution of AI operationalization in an explainable and responsible manner means various types of mechanisms need to be in place. So these mechanisms are audit trails, interpretability and algorithmic design choices, all of which can guide AI development and deployment into the future. Diving a little bit deeper, double-clicking on this a little bit further, the first concept that comes out is this whole concept of anthropomorphism. And I know that years ago when I was talking to Brian Gresh and we were talking about like the chat bots that are kind of driven by algorithms, he even mentioned that you know they had to program in a little pause in if you ask a question to a chat bot for when it would respond because it could respond super quick right away. But that delay in responding through a chat bot is actually much more human-like. Research and business people argue that for AI to become more integrated into our life, it needs to be more human-like. That includes like conversational abilities, making mental shortcuts to make decisions, being empathetic, or even sometimes looking more human physically. (laughs) Okay, So with the term human-like, what they're really referring to is the creation of behavioral similarities of humans in machines and not necessarily this whole looking like a human being kind of thing, but more like it's processing things. It's actually coming back and responding in a way that feels more like us, more anthropomorphic. Bless you. <laughs> so the you know anthropomorphic, algorithms they call in here. So some recent attempts to build more human-like AI at the micro level have been the creation of neural networks infused with decision science theory uh, to develop these algorithms that use mental shortcuts to mimic human decision-making. Whew. Man, we're going deep. (laughs) We are here. Yeah, this is pretty deep. (laughs) It is. But I mean, if you think about it, right, it's like we're we're teaching... AI to problem solve the way we as humans problem solve. Of course, AI can do it faster. Sure. But it it does it in a way that's very similar to us, using ways that we actually think, the logic that we as humans think about. And ultimately, by doing that, it leads to this better user experience and higher customer satisfaction. That's at least the, the the, the proposal here as we go through this. Now, I say that, also very cognizant of the fact that AI sometimes makes up stuff because it's 
knows that we're expecting it to make these decisions, right? So that's called AI hallucinations. But at least from a micro level, if you start to anthropomorphize not only the interaction, but the way it thinks, the the argument here is that it's going to get us to adopt or, or accept AI more in our practice. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's go to the meso level, which is from an application perspective. If you think about AI developments in the business, they focus a lot on automation, like process automation, robotics. We talk about this all the time using it for you know just-in-time production or smart building or talent management or business intelligence systems, using a bunch of data and processing it much quicker and better for us, and even analyzing and synthesizing that data together. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this whole other side of AI that uses this technology to look at employees and look at, um, you know, and tracking how employee and operations work within your organization. The whole thrust here about from an application perspective, if you want to humanize it, whether commercial or business driven, the use of this personal data needs to be governed and curated in a way that's ethically guided by us. So don't use AI in ways that kind of cross the line of what you as your organization is trying to do. And this is why we're hearing a lot about um, health systems pulling together AI governance groups, right? They're setting guidelines around what is acceptable for us to use from an AI perspective and what is not. And I think that's really important from an application perspective at this meso perspective is to create some guardrails around how we're going to be using AI to solve different business-like problems. Like they caught in here spying on employees, which I thought was an interesting quote-unquote AI solution. I don't know. That's interesting. So yeah, IoT, you know, something we haven't talked a lot about, although we did last week talk about smart hospitals, which we didn't really get into IoT, but that's kind of part of that, um, all these connected devices and stuff. So there's one other level of this framework, and I know we're going really deep here, but it's the macro level, which is from an organizational and societal perspective. Let's talk a little bit about that, Reid. Yeah, so they say in here, or they talk a little bit about the complexity of technology and that the biggest obstacle for large-scale AI adoption is actually human nature. So it's not the technology piece. Resistance to change, fear of the unknown, you know, the robots are taking over. We kid about that, but like not really. That's where people are really finding themselves, right? It's just this this world of unknown and uncertainty and, you know, is this going to eliminate my job? And just I have various different things I'm sure that are going through people's minds. Right? So to that end, they highlight four things that um, they see AI working in, right? So first of all, they say AI tools 
have several advantages in performing customer-facing tasks quicker and more accurately than humans, especially when they can demonstrate high cognitive intelligence and emphatic behavior. Once we start to accept that and trust these tools, we're going to endorse them much more efficiently. And we actually, in the interview coming up, we talk a little bit about how sometimes AI performs with fewer errors than humans do. And how do we accept that? And, And Aaron has a good perspective on that. What's the second thing they actually call out? You know, that AI really needs um, to focus more on explainability and ethics. Again, we've talked a little bit about the bias or hallucinations or whatever, you know, and, and so, you know, how do you eliminate unwanted bias in decision making, showing empathy, et cetera? So, again, you know, how do we train, look at these tools, model these tools to come around that a little bit and make people comfortable, maybe? There's a a sense of transparency here, right, That to what you're doing. I think that a lot of us feel that AI is black box, or when we talk about some of these open AI solutions like ChatGPT and BARD, et cetera, there are people saying, well, you're reading my work and you're plagiarizing it for, you know, this kind of work. The whole point here is around transparency, and that gets into that explainability, the ethics, the the bias, the decision-making. We have to just be more transparent. Third, they point out that is that AI tools must convey to human users that their decision automation is subject to errors, okay? They're not always right, that not all of their decisions are going to be accurate. The higher the cognitive capability of the AI platform, you have to accept the fact that the more likely it's going to be to make mistakes, just like humans do. So kind of having that openness of like, look, we're not going to be 100% right with our solutions, which I don't see a lot of AI companies doing that right now. All this is really fascinating to me and spins up a million questions. But the last thing that they kind of call out in here is, you know, the need for organizations to manage risk along with introducing all of this. That means a lot of things, like, right? I mean, this idea of managing risk as it relates to this. I mean, at some point, this is just part of life and it's part of your day-to-day. You live with some inherent risk of being hacked, for example, but the internet's useful enough or email's useful enough or something like that. Is that where we're going to get with this, you know, from a risk standpoint? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, it really does. And I think that in healthcare, that this becomes even more of a concern, right? When we think about it, I was just recently on a webinar when we were talking about generative AI in healthcare. And the big one of the big underlying themes is, can we take the risk of implementing some of these AI solutions in a healthcare setting when there could be potential you know, errors? There could be potentially, we're not really sure 100% transparently of where that data is coming from. Again, this kind of speaks to the fact that if we're going to start to adopt AI and technology and make it more part of our lives in a way that we could trust, I think we have to be very cognizant of how we're rolling out these solutions. Having said that, though, Reed, you and I have been using AI tools in certain capacities for years now, but just the way they were introduced to us, I don't think we had so much of a, a concern at the time. I mean, think about like Siri, think about the Alexa devices, think about, you know, using uh, AI for machine learning and machine learning in uh, advertising targeting. We've been doing these things for a while. It's just the way they rolled out was in kind of a low risk, cognizant sort of way. But now that everybody's on this AI hype cycle, 
I think it makes a lot of sense for us to kind of step back a second and say, if we're going to start rolling AI out in a big way and it's going to be transformative as a technology, how are we going to do this responsibly on a micro, meso, and macro level? That's what this whole article is about. And we're going to link to it in the show notes. We encourage people to go there and read a little bit more because we, we just kind of scratched the surface on this. And it gets deeper than you and I did, Reed. I didn't realize I was using AI, but um, <laughs> no, I think it's just, I don't want to be overly crude about this, but cost of doing business or become expected, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, again, the expectation is going to continue to evolve of what the consumer can do on their own, how they engage with this, what interactions mean, you know. So again, I think at some point we're not talking about this as much. It's just we're at that inflection point where this stuff is starting to become, you know, real and, and do some some things that we're not uh, used to. With that, I think this is a great uh, time to take a pause here. When we come back from the break, I am gonna you're gonna hear a conversation I had recently with Aaron Patzer of Vital.io about how he currently is working in hospitals and health systems around using AI and algorithms to really humanize that patient experience in ways that actually makes a lot of sense. So let's take a break here. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I'm delighted to have someone new on the show, but I have a feeling that Aaron, you might come back with it because there's a lot to talk about in the space that you work. And that's Aaron Petzer with Vital. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited to have our conversation today. I, you and I have had a couple of conversations so far, and this should be a very interesting and promising, um, I would say poignant dialogue for us to have today. But before we jump into the conversation itself, I always love to have our guest experts share a little bit about their background, and your background is particularly interesting. Um, and maybe you could then also talk about where you're at now and a little bit more about Vital. Yeah, definitely. My background is as an engineer. I'm the CEO of Vital. I was the founder and CEO of Mint.com, the largest personal finance tool in the US and Canada, 25 million users, consumer heavy software. I found myself after doing Mint as the an officer of Intuit, a big publicly traded software company at the age of 28. But I eventually ran product for TurboTax, QuickBooks, Quicken, Mint across the whole organization. So there's a decent chance that some of you or maybe many of you have used products that I've had my hands in. Vital is my first foray into health. And it's because most of my family uh, is in health. My sister is CEO of the Regan Streif Institute. They do LOINC codes. Uh, so you know everybody who's doing labs and results and that sort of thing uses LOINC. My brother-in-law is my business partner, uh, Dr. Justin Schrager, who was an emergency physician at Emory. Uh, my father worked in pharma. And literally at uh, like a Thanksgiving dinner, I saw Justin use, I, I won't name the EHR, but I was like, why are you using Windows 98 software? And he's like, this is the 2018 version. It's brand new. And we paid $100 million for it. And I was like, there's a problem in this industry and also an opportunity. So we got to speaking and the software was, it's, it's terrible for providers, for doctors and nurses, but it, it was even worse or non-existent for patients. And so Vital primarily is AI powered 
patient experience software. So we try to design beautiful and intelligent software to guide patients and their family members through an emergency stay or an inpatient hospital stay, what to do afterwards, what do your labs mean in human terms. You should never say that your BUN is 26 micrograms per deciliter. You should say this key electrolyte level is low, or this one tells if you're dehydrated, or this one tests your liver function and it's abnormal. You should treat humans like humans. And oddly, AI is one of the best ways to treat people like people. That seems a little counterintuitive, but first let me say, um, not only have I used mint.com, but I, I am an Intuit user. And one thing that I found about using these tools and technologies is that it was one of the first uh, experiences that I had where it made the financial aspects of and the paperwork aspects of what I needed to do from a business perspective that much simpler. And I love how you took that concept of humanizing the experience into healthcare, because this is certainly an opportunity and one that a lot of us that work in technology and healthcare are talking about today. In an earlier conversation with you, Aaron, you actually said something about that the algorithms, the, these AI and machine learning algorithms and others, are actually a prime opportunity to humanize the experience. And I thought that's a little counterintuitive. So let's talk a little bit about your perspective on that. Most software, I would say, is kind of a one-size-fits-all experience. But if you are in the hospital to give birth, that is radically different than if you're there for a heart stent or hip replacement surgery, or if you've gone into the emergency room you know, with chest pain and a, and a possible heart attack. And so the software itself should be different. I'll give you an example. We actually look at someone's vital signs and how they are improving or decreasing to uh, produce what we call a like a health score or a health meter. Like we can actually say today your health improved or over the last uh, couple of days it's it's improved. You can't give it you know by 20% or something, but you can you can give it sort of a numeric much improved or or a little bit improved. We actually look at that health score before we give you goals in or tasks or surveys. Um, in the application, if it seems like you are not doing so well, we won't ask you to do anything. Or maybe we'll ask you to do one thing, the most crucial thing. If you're recovering well, we might ask you to do four things. Watch a video, take a survey, order this, sit up when you're eating your meal, whatever the, the care instructions are. The software adapts to you, to your energy levels, to your condition. It's not just that the data is different, what appears and doesn't appear is different. It strikes me as you talk about that, that that type of technology is really because of the advent and widespread, I guess I would call evolution of AI in this space. And, you know, I've been in healthcare for, for many years. And 15 years ago, we were talking about personalized communications in the healthcare experience. And at that point in time, they were talking about, well, we're just going to make sure that we put, you know, insert their first name into the portal message that goes out or what have you. Is this a prime time for us to start to leverage and really amplify AI in this space? Yeah, AI is really for personalization. You see it, you know, when you go onto Netflix or Spotify or YouTube in your content recommendations, you see it in Facebook and Twitter and all the social networks. It's time to adapt those algorithms to healthcare 
to show people exactly the information they need when they need it. So we use AI to predict wait times in the emergency room, how long you're going to uh, wait before you see a triage nurse or how long you're going to be in the waiting room, how long your CT scan is going to take. It's a really complicated sort of algorithm. We use AI to assign video education to you based on your reason for visit, the CPT codes we see, things that your, do- your doctors are writing in their notes, even your lab results, if they're abnormal, might get a video assigned to you all automatically without doctors or nurses having to create that playlist for you. Because sometimes they'll do it, but often they're too busy. There's not actually a huge difference between creating a crafted AI-powered patient experience and reducing staff burden as well. I recall, again, you know, many years ago, this was a very much manually driven thing. The, the provider, the nurse, or the, 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 the physician would have to manually kind of trigger that communication. And now, because of the advancements of AI and, all, and, and being able to, to crawl across a lot of different disparate data sets, they're able to make those connections. I think this is a really interesting application of this and really bringing that concept of personalized communication to bear. How are you working with health systems uh, on this? We sit on top of your EHR, so Cerner, Epic, Allscripts, MedTech, ideally with a fire interface. Um, or HL7 and sort of pull real-time information out. Orders, results, notes, uh, things about your visit, your vital signs. And we make these predictions. What's your probability of being admitted? Do we need to clear a bed for you upstairs? How long are you going to wait? If you've been waiting for too long, we actually proactively apologize to you. We'll send you a little text message. Sorry, you're still waiting in the ER. We know that's often not a great experience. Is there anything that we can do for you? Can we get you a blanket, bottle of water? Radically improves patient experience scores. Like if you look at the Google reviews for your average hospital or your average emergency room, it's something like a 2.3. Like you would never touch a restaurant that had a 2.3 rating. You would never (laughs) eat there. True. And we've gotten up to 4.4, 4.6, like respectable. You would actually want to go to this establishment, like literally doubling the public review scores simply by treating patients the way you'd want to be treated. You know, if you were waiting for 90 minutes for a bed and some sometimes wait times are horrendous in the emergency room, apologize, ask if you can do something for that patient and coordinate. And all of that asking and apologizing is either AI or you can set up hard rules for that. I don't know about you, but you know, I've, I've found that a lot when you're talking about implementing kind of new technologies and new transformative kind of approaches to this communication, there is a little bit of reluctance for it to take root in health systems because do, do the, the clinicians and the, you know, the operations, are they rushing into to doing this or are they a little bit resistant to, uh, to this new technology? Hospitals and health systems being conservative to adopt technology. Wow. I, um, I've never heard that one before. Honestly, one of the fun things for me is things that I did in Silicon Valley 10 or 15 years ago, that to me seem pretty obvious that everyone is is already doing in those industries, bringing them to healthcare, and people are just they're blown away with what I think are simple personalizations or simple even onboarding people into our app 
people always call it an app. It's just a, it's a web page. It's a progressive web page. We send you a text message with a password list. It looks like a password reset link. And then you, you type in your, your last name, your date of birth. We get 60% of people using Vital, EHRs. 8 to 12% of people will use their application because they make them download an app. No one wants to do that anymore. They make them sign up with a new username and password that no one's ever going to remember just to get basic information. And we just send people a text and we're like, hey, do you want to know how long you're waiting? And they're like, yeah, I'm sitting in the waiting room right now. That's exactly what I want to, what I want to know. As you describe how it works, to me, it, why it resonates, I think, so much and why you're seeing such good user acceptance is because, and Reed and I have talked about this on the show before, patients are not really willing participants in their healthcare experience in many cases. I think there's some exceptions, having a baby, et cetera, but there's sort of a reluctance around consumers wanting to participate in their healthcare experience. And part of that is because we made the experience so darn hard. It's not easy for them. It's not relevant for them. And I think, uh, you know, trying to match them, particularly with their expectations that they have nowadays with other technologies and other industries, this is sort of like a hard chasm to, to, to leap over in our space. I think part of the gap that you see and why patients often don't feel in control of their own health is Healthcare used to be quite paternalistic. It's a bit less so, but it's still an industry that speaks almost a foreign language. Like if you look at a medical note or if a doctor is speaking to you or sometimes at you, they'll say, you know, your mom had a cerebral infarction, you know, instead of stroke. There is, if you read your your medical note on your x-ray, it says, there's a fracture of your medial malleolus. I'm not even sure if I could pronounce these words correctly. <laughs> and instead of saying there's a break in your foot, you know, or you've got three breaks in your foot. Um, so we've actually developed technology. It's based on large language models like a chat GPT that can translate all of the medical jargon, all of the abbreviations into something that patients and their families can actually understand. You will actually see like these medical reports that say NPO at midnight. What does NPO mean? NPO is an abbreviation of a Latin term that's a nil per os, I think, which means don't eat or drink anything after midnight because you're going to have surgery. No one understands what these abbreviations mean. Sometimes new residents, nurses don't understand what half of the specialist abbreviations are. And by a statistical analysis of language and PubMed and all of those things, you can actually pretty well expand all the abbreviations and all the medical terms into much more common terms. So you, MI becomes myocardial infarction becomes heart attack. Heart attack is much more commonly used in the language. So you know that that phrase appears more often and you can do something to substitute those mathematically. And we've done that. And it works really, really well. And it's surprisingly safe. Uh, Having worked on hospital websites for a long time, we've done a lot of that translation of the medical jargon to things that consumers actually search for, right? And taking these technical terms and translating it to what humans can understand and process. And that really helps to kind of cross that that gap that that we addressed around you know, making healthcare that much more accessible. And accessibility in this particular case means just understandable, 
right? I think it's a big, big thing. So this technology has been out in our apps for the last couple of months. And August 8th, um, we are actually putting this out to the general public. Everybody can translate five medical reports free. So literally anywhere around the world, right now it just takes English documents as input. Um, And in a couple of weeks, we'll have them translated to not only English you can understand, but Spanish and other languages um, as well. It's super powerful. I hope that uh, people, you know, use it instead of trying to look up each and every word and phrase on Google to, to try to decipher what these documents mean, because nobody really understands. There's a lot of talk now about this concept of AI hallucinations, right? Where AI kind of makes up things. And that's a lot based on the the technical aspects of what are the data sets? What are the data models that they're learning against? What do you, what's your perspective on AI hallucinations and, and particularly in healthcare, which we're always kind of concerned about? Yeah. So you have to understand how large language models like ChatGPT are trained and what information they do and don't have. So ChatGPT is trained on the common crawl. So you can expect that it knows anything that Wikipedia knows, that it has access to PubMed and the like, but it wasn't trained specifically on medical information. And it doesn't have access to, and I've noticed that it is particularly prone to hallucinations around coding, whether it's LOINC codes, SNOMED codes, CPT codes, diagnostic ICD codes. Um, And that's because PubMed and these other places where it was trained, the words were not correlated with the coding systems. Those tend to be stuck in EHRs or stuck in uh, payer uh, databases. And so you'd actually want to train a large language model on those associations, and then it would do a much better job and not hallucinate. Um, If you ask ChatGPT for a diagnostic code, it will sometimes come up with a code because it knows there should be a number there, but it doesn't know exactly what number it should be. The way to use um, large language models uh, safely, because they are a bit of a black box, is I would not use them for diagnostics. I would not use them in what I call an expansionary way, where you take a small bit of text and ask them to expand upon it. But they are very good at what I would call reduction or summarization, which is exactly how we use them. So take a 10-page medical note full of jargon, but frankly, 80% boilerplate, and pick out the, the bits that are most important. It's surprisingly good at that. And um, with a bit of engineering and retraining of some of these uh, large language models that you, you mentioned, we've gotten our doctor to patient translator at 99.4% safe. So we wow. have a panel of seven doctors look at literally thousands of translations geographically distributed across the country because we have, you know, a hundred hospitals that we're running in. We had them do specific things like look at the quality of x-ray reports versus MRIs, CTs, and ultrasounds, and compare them, compare the different lengths of reports, reports for different conditions and different ages. So really thorough in how we looked at the data. Each of them would independently um, grade, and then we would have some overlap because the grading, both in terms of quality and safety, can be inconsistent among humans, of course. 
and compiled all this together. So we've got a, a peer-reviewed paper that we're working on and have tried to put as much rigor as possible around all of this. That doesn't mean that it never makes mistakes. And I can tell you what kinds of mistakes it makes. So about 99.4%, so about one in every 200 times, it'll uh, not necessarily make a mistake, but it's usually an omission. So when we try to summarize a 10-page document, into three or four sentences. If it's a complex medical case, sometimes it'll miss something minor. I have never seen the system make what I would call a negation error, which is where it says, ah, Chris, you have cancer when you don't. Or I've, and I've never seen it take an existing medication and swap it for another one. So it's never mixed any of that up. That gives me a lot of confidence in the safety but it will never be a hundred percent. And so health systems are like, well, what about the 0.6%? Right. Uh, and I'm like, well, maybe, maybe just, I, I could use a little like validation or praise for getting it above 99%. I mean, that was not an easy engineering task. <laughs> but yes, fair enough. Your health systems. So what about that 0.6%? And the fair comparison is how well does it do versus a human? And when we asked our doctors to summarize these notes by hand, you know, to glance over them and write a little summary, they don't score as well as the large language model. They were surprised consistently that it found something on page seven that they were like, oh yeah, that, that, that is relevant. I did not see that at first glance because these things are full of boilerplate. And so the real comparison of AI is how well does it do versus humans? Which you realize by just stating that it makes some people listening in kind of shiver a little bit, right? <laughs> because that's, it, it, I understand the point. I absolutely understand the point. And it's interesting to kind of phrase that, right? As we're talking about personalization, using technology to kind of humanize the, the care experience, comparing it against the actual human experience of humans involved, that's an interesting comparison. I never really thought about that. I mean, obviously, we've heard all the news stories about, you know, AI being able to pass law exams and all these other things. But in this particular case, comparing its performance against actual humans in the care experience, that gives one pause. For summarization, I'm an advocate for human in the loop AI, which means none of our AI, we might make predictions on whether you're going to be admitted to the hospital, but it's the doctor who makes the decision, not the AI. The AI can tell someone on the operational side, we think you're going to have six people admitted from the emergency department. You need to prepare beds or bring a new, new nurse in or send a nurse home if, if the volume's lower. Um, but there's, there's always uncertainty to it. And the provider should always make the final call. However, in the instance of the doctor to patient translator, most doctors do not have time to take the 20 or 30 minutes to thoroughly explain discharge instructions or your aftercare instructions. Um, and by putting those in plain English terms that people can understand saves providers a lot of time where they can go back and save lives. I mean, I observe uh, Dr. Schrager, my, our co-founder, my brother-in-law in the emergency room, and I can see him sort of get nervous when he's like explaining things to patients because in the back of his mind, there is another patient who needs him urgently physically. And so having anything that can save doctors time, it's, 
it's tremendously valuable. Yeah, we're kind of in this in the spot, Aaron, where we're we're dealing with shortage of resources, of human resources in healthcare, right? Nursing shortages, provider provider resources. We've heard about the shortages that are happening and the promise of this technology coming into play. But but I'm still sensing that our industry is kind of saying, yes, we want to adopt these tools to save time, to save resources, to save, you know, all of these things and solve this problem. Yet before we implement it, we need to have governance. We need to have you know, a variety of different, like, I've even heard tell of like developing, you know, a team of people to kind of fact check or, or audit the AI technology that they're using. How do you see us navigating over that, that big challenge there? Because I think that's where the big promise is. Everything that you mentioned is a good idea. You probably should have a governance board and a process around this, and you should have um, AI fact checkers. And guess what? If you're using large language models, the commercially available ones, they change. They upgrade ChatGPT every few weeks. And so you need a process of continuous quality monitoring. When we go out to implement the, the AI, the doctors and nurses, they always want to know, well, how does it work on my data? So we'll actually do a translation of 10, 50, 100 documents that this particular doctor wrote. And they were like, mm, this, this is pretty good. You got, you've got my go ahead. This, this is working really well. They can see how valuable it is and how, how quality um, it is. So when it comes to like technology, uh, AI, large language models in healthcare, uh, it definitely, the promise is there. It's just kind of proceed with caution and oversight as we start to adopt these tools. I think that's kind of the common thread I'm hearing. I would warn all the audience out there, open AI, so the makers of ChatGPT, it is not HIPAA compliant. They do not sign a BAA. You should not put patient information into ChatGPT. The doctor to patient translator that we have is HIPAA compliant, uh, high trust, SOC 2, um, all of that. And you have to have the end-to-end chain of audits and BAAs and all the compliance with your servers and with your software through and through. Whoever you go with, um, and we are a founding partner of um, Hippocratic AI, who's doing a vertical-specific, a healthcare-specific large language model. They are or will be, you know, HIPAA, high trust, all the all the healthcare compliance that you need. Just look at the details and, and don't get yourself into any any trouble. Um, there are people trying to do right by healthcare through and through legally compliance and um, in the safety scores. You know, I, th- I think that's good to know and to reiterate, right? That that we are as an industry organizations that are looking at this and starting to build the right solutions for us because. That really the opportunity is in healthcare, as, as we've been talking about, right? Using AI, large language models in this space. I'm, I'm just curious in all the work that you've done, what other factors of an organization, is it cultural, what have you, that help to get them to adopt these solutions? In the healthcare space, yeah. So we work with some pretty big health systems. And one of the models that I've seen is they often have um, a region or a hospital or um, ideally two or three hospitals that are their, their innovators, their adopters, and they put them out there first. And I like that model. It's a pretty big ask to take a 100 hospital health system 
uh, big conservative, maybe slow moving, and just immediately adopt all of the technologies um, that we've produced. So usually they roll them out um, at a few hospitals first. And then once they realize that it's safe, that they're not going to get any patient complaints, that the doctors like it, six months later, a year later, they'll start to roll it out. Um, so have pick a specific hospital that is your innovation center, if you haven't already. That's a really interesting point there, too. And when you said, you know, six to eight months later, it rolls out or whatever, in software terminology or in software timeline, that seems like an eternity. I, I'm sure when you, you know, when you came from, well, actually, you worked in a very regulated industry, so maybe it was that slow for adoption. But I think we like to try to adopt the move fast and break things kind of model in healthcare. And we can't do that in our space. We have to be very conservative. I, I would agree. I'm honestly, I would love a six to, to eight month time frame. And it was in eternity in, you know, the consumer world of Silicon Valley. We have clients who we've been working with for two or three years and um, they're, they're not fully expanded. I, I sometimes wonder uh, why, but you know, the fact that we're in 20, 30, 40 of their hospitals, they were like, this is the fastest any vendor has ever moved. And we rolled out and I was like, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad we're leading this. Um, but it's, it's a different expectation than, you know, what I'm, what I'm used to. I, that's something I've been in this space for 15 years and it still sometimes is, is uh, struggling for me, right. To, to move as fast as you can while still being very cautious and slow. Aaron, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else that we've, we haven't touched upon that you might want to share with our audience? Well, by the time the podcast comes out, we will have relaunched our website at vital.io. And if you want to use that doctor to patient translator, it'll be vital.io slash translate. Oh, there you go. Well, we'll definitely put links to all of that in the show notes, probably also linking to your LinkedIn account, if you're okay with that, because I know that people listening in may want to continue on the conversation and uh, learn more about what your organization is. Definitely. We, just as a, as a quick plug, will improve your patient experience scores, reduce your left without being seen. And we typically increase the follow-up appointment adherence by 40 or 50%, which is typically worth about a million dollars in revenue to the health system per facility. Wow. That's certainly something to consider here. So, well, Aaron, I really appreciate you uh, having some time with me today, sharing a little bit about, you know, this whole concept of the counterintuitive concept of technology to personalize the experience, but it sounds very promising. And uh, we'll have to have you back on in the near future because I have a feeling that generative AI, large language models, this is going to be something that is not just going to be, you know, like early adoption in healthcare. It may even uh, be something that, that will allow us to continue on as the way we do it or even improve the way healthcare is delivered in the U.S. Thanks again for your insights today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Special thanks to Aaron for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate his time, his insights, and willingness to visit a little bit about a, a topic that I can only joke about uh, because I don't know what I'm talking about. So... Um, no, I appreciate that. So a couple of quick plugs. Touchpoint.health is the website. As we've mentioned a number of times, uh, sign up for the TPS report while you're there. I would love to have you uh, start getting that email from us once a week with a few articles. 
and links to upcoming conferences. So let us know what you think. If there's uh, things we should cover, people we should talk to, et cetera, reach out to us. Before we call it a day, a couple of recommendations. What, what do you got today, Chris? Reed, I know last week you recommended a TV show. This week I'm going to recommend a TV show that my wife and I watched on Apple TV. There's so many streaming services, it's hard to keep track. But this one is called Hijack, and it stars Idris Elba. And the premise is, is that he boards a flight going from Saudi Arabia to London. And once he boards that flight, it is hijacked, hence the name of the title, Hijack. And it takes place over that six-hour flight. The uh, seven-part series takes place over the entire six-hour flight. What happens, why it's happening, the communication with people on the, fl- on the ground, whatever. I'm telling you, it's one of these thrillers, very well acted. I love it. I like it. It was a really good show. Um, you know, and, and of course, Idris Elba is just amazing in what he does, but all the other supporting characters are also very good. Every episode left us kind of hanging on the edge of our seats and there was a twist at every episode. So you don't know where it's going to go and how things are going to end and how it ends or whatever. And it's really short, right? It's like seven episodes to get to the end, about an hour long of each episode. So completely, you know, watchable and able to, able to watch you and your wife will probably really enjoy this read. Cool. I'm going to recommend it again, Hijack on Apple TV. That's a, a really great show if you like that type of, uh, that you know, that thriller. Man, I'm adding it to my list. That sounds good. I like it. All right. I am going to recommend a ruler, Chris. A um, ruler? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned last week about kids starting school. I'm just getting back in the swing of things here. Next week will be glue sticks, but no, um, <laughs> But yeah, a ruler. I do like the idea of striking things off a list, for example, or using pen and paper. Uh, I am somewhat particular about right angles and straight lines and things like that. And so there is a set, both a 6-inch and a 12-inch, they come together, metal rulers. You can get them in blue, you can get them in red. Stainless steel ruler, and it has a conversion table on it, which I don't really care anything about that part. It's really just about drawing lines to me. But anyway, on Amazon, and they're great. they got kind of a rounded end, but they've got a straight end as well. And so it makes you know, for a pretty handy way that I can check off my to-do list. Interesting. First of all, I never thought to get a ruler in a two a two ruler set. So, Well, I mean, you know, 12, it's, it's, uh, it's a little, it's overkill. You don't need a ruler that long, uh, usually, uh, <laughs> unless you're going landscape. You know, if you got legal papers or something, that's you know that's different. But really, your six-inch ruler is uh, is plenty for your eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper or your moleskin. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm recommending. There you go. Well, that's a great recommendation. Um, next time I'm in the market for a ruler, I'm definitely going to grab one. <laughs> grab it. Grab that one you suggested. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know which one to to get. So there you go. There you go. All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for all the support. Tell a friend, tell a coworker. Uh, it's the best way you can help us out. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.